0: Welcome ladies and gentlemen to True Restoration. Here is your host.
1: I'm your host Justin Soder, and this show tonight is going to be a round panel discussion amongst clergy and lady on the sad spectacle of today's we might say axis tilting event, that is specifically the supposed canonizations of John Paul II and John the 23rd. Tonight, I am joined by a stable of guests, uh, some that listeners know, some that listeners don't know, and so let me proceed to the introductions, and then we'll jump right into the program. First of all, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Father Bernard Utley, OSB, pastor of Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in London, Ontario, and also the eloquent guest on our show, The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. Father, thanks for joining us and being here tonight on this monumentous occasion.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, I would like to tell our listeners that if you haven't listened to Father's show, you're missing one of the best shows on the network and probably my personal favorite. It's a it's a fantastic show, and you can you can uh, find it at uh, www.restorationradionetwork.com. Also joining us is a voice that s- certainly our listeners are familiar with, my right honorable colleague Nicholas Wansbutter, co-founder of the Restoration Radio Network and host of the show The Spiritual Life with Father Bernard as well as clerical conversations on the crisis with Bishop Daniel Dolan and Father Anthony Chicata. Nicholas, thanks for joining us again. Oh, pleasure as
3: always, Justin.
1: And next, we would like to introduce our listeners to a couple of voices they have not heard before on the network. And Both of these gentlemen have been feverishly working behind the, you know, behind the scenes with us for quite some time. The first is Mario Dirksen. Uh, Mario is the curator of tootbishops.com, and he is a tireless research analyst for True Restoration and the Restoration Radio Network. Mario is a published author and has written for the Four Marks and the Reign of Mary. He also has a new article coming up in the Reign of Mary, so be sure to check out for that. Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And second is Dr. Bill Sang. He was confirmed by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and served Mass in those early years of the traditional movement many times for then-Fathers Dolan and Sanborn and Father Chikada. And more recently, was very close to Albert Leonard Gerardina in Christ the King Abbey in Alabama during his postdoctoral work at Auburn University. He is a physicist, and he is now living on top of a mountain in Catholic New Mexico. He's been married for 23 years and has three children so far. Bill, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the program.
4: Happy to be here.
1: Restoration Radio programs, including this one, are available on restorationradionetwork.com and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on various social media channels like Facebook and Twitter. Find us by using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. Let's talk about tonight's show, which was entitled The Canonization of Vatican II. This was originally going to be a layman's reaction to the canonization, quote-unquote, of two, quote-unquote, popes, but Father Bernard um, very charitably decided to join us this evening. So we're going to talk about things like what is the near-term and and long-term impact and what does it mean for us and for our faith. I mean this is obviously a huge moment and is definitely what would be classified as a game changer for the entire traditional movement but also an event that has monumental implications for every man, woman, and child who identifies as a traditional Catholic. So I want to start off by talking initially about everyone's reactions to these supposed canonizations, and we're going to talk a little bit more about why we say supposed uh, later in the show, but first let's talk reactions. So Father, why don't you start us off with your reactions to today's events, and I'll walk us around the horn of panelists.
2: Okay. Well, first of all, I'm not really surprised that these canonizations took place. It was just a matter of time. Uh, The Conciliar Church desperately wanted to canonize Vatican II, and these two men represented Vatican Council. Uh, I think also Paul VI also represented that council, but and was responsible for so much destruction in the church. But I think they gave up on him because they couldn't sell him. Uh, he had too much baggage, perhaps. And as far as I know, he's not well liked. Uh, and he also had some serious allegations concerning his personal moral life. But John the Twenty Third and John Paul II were both popular. And I it's I think it's um I find it crazy that in the last 500 years, we've only had two Popes canonized, Pope St. Pius V and Pope St. Pius X. And now all of a sudden, we're loaded with Pope saints since Vatican II. Vatican II has magically produced such wonderful saints, and it's ridiculous. It's it's, uh, obviously ridiculous. And these two men are not saints. They're anti-saints. There's so much evidence against these modernists that... It's not just the elephant in the room; it's a whole herd of elephants. And sometimes I think there's so, there's there's so much evidence that it becomes overwhelming, and people become blind to it. You
1: know, there's uh, it's it's a lie so big that people believe it. Mm-hmm. Nicholas, what was your reaction?
3: Yeah, well, uh, my reaction was partly that. I'm surprised it took them this long. I mean, I knew as soon as John Paul II died that uh, they were going to be canonizing him as fast as they felt they could get away with it. Precisely so that they could canonize Vatican II, because he's the quote, the Pope, unquote, of Vatican II. He's the one who really uh, put it into effect, who uh, interpreted it for everyone and uh, really put his stamp on the Novus Ordo sect and really helped create the Novus Ordo sect or take it to the next level of its creation after Paul yeah. VI. Uh, my second reaction is I'm thinking, okay, now that this has happened, surely this has got to shock a few people out of the whatever situation they're in where they've been be it in the gilded cage of the Indult, just uh, kind of quietly enjoying their Latin Mass and trying to ignore what's going on in the rest of the Nova Thordes sect, or the Society of St. Pius X, recognize and resist people who've been trying to say that these uh, post-Vatican II claimants are the Pope and they haven't done anything they haven't made any ex-cathedra declarations, so therefore we're okay. They're just bad popes. They're not heretics. Whereas, you know, now we're engaging something that ex- is an exercise in the magisterium. But, I mean, really, the, in the starkest way possible, even more so than Jose Maria Escriva, this is really drawing a line in the sand, as it were, or the difference between the Catholic religion and the Novus Ordo sect and who the Catholic religion holds up as uh, people to be emulated and people to uh, seek intercessions with God from, and who the Novus Ordo
1: Sex does. Mario, what was your thoughts? Or what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I would say first, um, with respect to the conciliar church, my, my reaction is basically whatever. You know, <laughs> what difference does it make at this point? Um they, I mean, the whole thing is a farce, so they might as well canonize uh, these two people. It, it really doesn't make uh, a difference uh, as far as the Vatican II Church itself goes. Now, um, as, far as, the, um, as far as the souls, you know, the, the people of goodwill that are, uh, you know, still um, in the, in the uh, Vatican II Church, um, this is, of course, very, very damaging um you know because uh, they all innocently believe that these two men uh john the 23rd and john paul ii uh are saints they're actual saints that they can pray to in heaven and ask for their intercession and that they can honor and venerate and imitate i mean god forbid somebody imitated john paul ii with with his interreligious uh shenanigans with his theology of the body and, 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 you know, all of these things. So that is very, very grave, uh, of course. And then finally, with respect to the Society of St. Prius the Tenth and uh, other groups like them, you know, independent priests and so forth like them that are basically just doing their own thing, um, it's just going to be one more thing that they resist. I mean, they have to really Disconnected themselves from this church that they claim is the Catholic Church. So I am interested to see how they will all react, but I think we're going to have various, a lot of different reactions from different groups and individuals to that uh,
1: Society of Pius tens and people of, of like mind. All right, Bill, and what were your thoughts or what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I think what hit me, really between the eyes, is that this with this one stroke, they hit both sides of Catholicism—the the outward signs from Vatican II and the internal structure of JP2 from both canon law and the changes to the Catechism. So, to me, there's really nothing left to change. It's all about what's the implementation is going to be uh, at the parish level.
1: Yeah, my thoughts on this are you know, very similar to um, uh, to Nicholas's insofar as it does draw a line in the sand now. I think this had to happen. I think there's no question that this was destined to happen because this is indeed, as we've all said, the canonization of the council. And I think this, this, this event, I would say it effectively ends the hermeneutic of continuity debate. Um, you know, they, they, have, they have sort of you know, once and for all said, okay, this is it. And we are. This is no longer open for discussion. These men represent the council. You know, the uh, you know, the first called the council, and the second spent 27 years, uh, you know, defining and implementing sort of the uh, the new religion uh, in uh, with with respect to the council. And this is the end of the debate. So I think this had to happen. I agree, too, that I'm surprised that it took this long. I mean, particularly uh, at JP 2s funeral where the Vatican had put people out there to start chanting Santo Sabito, you know, sainthood now. Um, So in nine years, I think he beat uh, Mother Teresa's uh, supposed canonization by nine days, making this the the fastest canonization. So, um, you know, this was obviously on a fast track. It was on a fast track for a reason and now it's done. And in the wake of this, it leaves a tremendous amount of questions for people of goodwill to start trying to sift through. We're going to talk about those tonight. So let's, let's take a basic look. Um, you know, we could talk about John the Twenty Third, and we will a little bit, but obviously you know, the marquee figure here is John Paul II. And the fundamental question is, was he a saint? Was he a saint? You know, objectively, let's look at that question and say, was he a saint? Father, what say you about this?
2: I, he was a heretic and an apostate. I mean, he uh, did so many, said so many heretical things uh, during his quote-unquote pontificate, and he's done so many heretical things in his actions. Um, he is the anti-saint. Uh, I don't know what else to say. That's, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It's bizarre and absurd. To consider that man a saint when he has violated he has sin- he has objectively speaking uh committed so many countless mortal sins against the faith uh, in his false worship um, with other with other religions um, so obviously. He was not a saint uh, for that. I think on the surface, he looked like a—you know, I remember I looked at some videos of him, um, pictures of him. He looked like a very nice, sweet, gentle, kind man. But we can't follow our emotions. We can't follow sentimentality in this. We have to use our reason, enlightened by faith, and, and judge his actions according to traditional Catholic theology. The man was a heretic. Um, so uh, he could not be a saint. Uh, it's like canonizing Martin Luther or John Calvin or or Muhammad or Buddha. Uh, it just can't be done. He's not a saint. He's not an example uh, for us to follow. Uh, objectively speaking, he he promoted mortal sin. He promoted uh, uh, evil disciplines, evil laws, evil teachings. Uh, so obviously, he just can't be a saint.
1: You know, scandalous actions, of, you know, of course. I don't Absolutely. think anybody else in the panel. I don't think anybody else in the panel can say anything more than that. Uh, you know, I, so I think I think I want to move into um, really the implications of what this means for the traditional movement as a whole. You know, There's been, um, you know, after the council and certainly after the the, uh, the imposition of the Mass of Paul VI. Um, there have been varying points in the traditional movement that have had what we would call you know, hallmark moments or, or keystone or turning point, whatever adjective you or colorful phrase you want to put on there. I mean, I can think of things like uh, the implication of the new mass or the you know, the imposition of the new mass, some more in Pontificum, you know, Vatican II, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre consecrating the bishops in 88, um, you know the 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 institution of the Fraternity of Saint Peter. There have been several several different um, events which have sort of uh, pushed people into certain areas of this big tent that we call traditional Catholicism. Um, what is the ranking, Father, and the importance of this event in the history of the traditional movement? And then I'll go around our panel
2: in regard to what the the supposed infallibility of it.
1: Well, I mean, really, just. Just the event itself. I mean, I mean, how would how would you rank this in 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 the importance of um, what it's going to do to to the traditional movement as a whole?
2: In one way, I I, I believe that it's not going to do a lot. I think the people who are I've um, already made enough excuses for these uh, modern pontiffs that that uh, they'll just make another excuse. They'll find a way to wiggle out of it. I don't know how much will change. I really don't know. Personally, in some way, outside of the traditional movement, uh, uh, although that's not a good term to use, we're not moving anywhere, that I I, I personally feel that this event is apocalyptic in some way, that we're witnessing a huge step in the great apostasy. And I'm not an expert on the book of the apocalypse and the end times prophecies and and such like, but... (laughs) I think this is this fits right into it. Uh, you have two two quote unquote popes canonizing more or less in a ceremony two other modern heretic popes. So I would not be surprised that the that the Antichrist himself is near, and that things will speed up even faster now, and they will snowball um towards the end. I think we're witnessing uh, an apocalyptic event. Will people change from it? Will it affect the traditional movement? I think some will will get off the barbed wire fence and make a decision uh, and reject uh, Francis as the Pope, but I think very few. I think we are living in the great apostasy, and that means that uh, most people have fallen away from the faith, and
1: uh, they'll remain that way. I don't see a, a general conversion to the truth. Nicholas, uh, what do you think this is going to do? I mean, what's what, what's the ranking and, and the importance of this event?
3: Well, I, I'm inclined to go along with uh, Father Bernard and actually rank this fairly low, uh, or th- not at the top anyway, just because, as Father said, people who haven't already uh, realized that the post-Vatican II claimants are not... Catholic popes, they've already made so many excuses and uh, gone through so many uh, mental contortions in order to maintain that position that I don't know that a lot's going to change here. I mean, the the whole thing with Vatican II people being, quote, canonized, unquote, the, the pump's already been primed for people to... Uh, uh, continue in whatever position on with Jose Maria Escriva, who I mentioned earlier, and on behalf of the Society of St. Pius X, Father Peter Scott already back then uh, created the theology of canonizations aren't infallible, all a canoniz- canonization means is that the person's in heaven, it doesn't mean that he's a exemplar of virtue that we should be imitating so we can safely ignore them, and it doesn't need to cause us any concern. So, I, I don't know how important it would be, yet on the other hand, part of me thinks this is so blatant that it's got to wake a few people up, although if it doesn't, then uh, I don't think anything ever will.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Mario, what are your thoughts on on this event and how it ranks?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. If this doesn't wake people up, probably nothing uh, nothing will. I am I am hopeful that uh, this will push some people uh, over the over the edge, so to speak. Those who've been kind of uh, you know sitting on the fence <laughs> and uh, been wondering you know what to do. But yeah, like uh, Nicholas said, if this doesn't do it, uh, probably uh, nothing would. So um, mm. I'm a little more optimistic. Bill,
4: Well, for me, this was definitely watershed, and, and it's, it's going to be hard after the canonization of these two for anyone to say, like Benedict XVI did, that there was some way of, to have continuity between the church before and the church now. So to me, that's the biggest thing. There's a zero on the
1: ruler. Here's the zero. Here's the starting point. Yeah, I think you know, my thoughts on this are, is you know, this is a huge moment. Now, granted, I mean, you know, points have been raised here. Certainly, you know, correctly raised that there's a certain group of people uh, that have been, you know, mainly those in the recognize and resist camps, like you know the the, you know, the SSPX, but also, uh, you know, those in the adult as well. I mean, I, you know, I have several friends of mine who are adhering to the indult paradigm, and uh, they're they're somewhat infected by this whole recognize and resist thing of well, you know, we're going to reject. The new mass, because we know it's evil, we're going to reject the canon law because we know that it's wrong, we're going to reject the catechism because it's modernist, we're going to reject the disciplines, we're going to reject everything, you know, we won't even take their holy water, we want the old holy water, quote-unquote. Um, you know, there's, you know these, there's been a whole, um, this whole edifice has been built. That, that Look, everyone knows whether or not you call yourself an adult person or an SSPXer or an, you know, it's through Christ the King, you, know, you name the camp. Everyone knows what is going on here. The problem is they just can't come to grips with it. And I think this event here today is most certainly going to force some people to finally start using their heads. And if they don't, well, then there's no hope for them. But you cannot push the square peg into the round hole here. I think this is is as good a time as any to move into a bit of what what Nicholas talked about, which was this idea that, well – there is a measure of infallibility here. There is this thing that we used to call, you know, the universal ordinary magisterium of the Church, that they said, hey, popes are indeed the final word, the final authority on this, and this has become muddied. This is um, certainly by by no lack of effort by Father Peter Scott saying, well, there was procedural errors, so therefore it's invalid, on and on and on. So, Father, I, I think uh, we certainly need to start with you on this, and then we have, uh, we have some supplementary things to go into with this. But let's talk about the infallibility. Is it Catholic to say that we can ignore this because of a procedural error of something such as the, the elimination of the devil's advocate and, oh, there, there wasn't a proper I dotted and a T crossed or a lowercase j dotted? Is that fair for a Catholic to say that, and can a Catholic pick and choose what saints he venerates? Oh, absolutely not. The, the Pope is supposed to be infallible in such a declaration, and you could argue at least
2: the ordinary magisterium of the Church, but these are solemn declarations. These are uh, solemn declarations that uh, are binding on the whole Church. Uh, canonization creates a cultist, uh, which is universal and obligatory. Uh, And, uh, you know, the process, like you said, of canonization has been considerably dumbed down over the recent decades, but uh, the strict, meticulous process of scrutiny does not affect the final infallible proclamation. The process is not the infallible thing. The final judgment is. You know, obviously, it's it's the more prudent thing to do for a pope to have a very meticulous process and, and get advice and everything like that. But at the end of the day, the Pope makes the final decision. It, it's, it, it's That is what is supposed to be infallible and protected by our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, for Pope Francis, quote-unquote Pope Francis, to, to do this, shows that he's not protected by infallibility. Therefore, he can't be the true Pope. It's the only logical conclusion. Um, it's definitely not Catholic to to uh, reject Uh, such a declaration either this man is the pope or he's not either if he's the pope you have to accept these declarations absolutely whether there's the devil's advocate or anything else if he's the pope he made this declaration it's binding on consciences and but since we cannot in conscience accept these he can't be the pope you can't have both
1: Before we go around the roundtable here, I have a little audio excerpt here that was taken uh, from Clerical Conversations on the Crisis last season, uh, July the 27th, when it was actually announced. I think it was announced on the 27th or or just a few days shortly there before um, uh, the 27th, and this is a clip of Nicholas who was speaking with Bishop Sanborn and Father Ciccata about this idea of the the infallibility of canonizations, and I think it it ties in perfectly to what we're talking about. So let's take a listen. Now, when a pope uh,
3: approves someone as a a saint and approves them for uh, universal uh, veneration as a saint, is that an infallible act? And if so, what makes it so?
5: Well, it's uh, considered part of the uh, secondary infallibility of the Church. It's a secondary object of infallibility. In other words, it's um, uh, the, it is the the idea that a saint is in heaven. That truth is uh, somehow necessarily connected to the truths of revelation, <laughs> and a uh, part of that is uh, that the Church has to be a reliable guide to us for uh, the way to heaven. Uh, And if she said that someone was in heaven uh, and was a model for sanctity, but the person was uh, really in hell, or uh, if the church erred about some fact necessarily connected with the dogma and so on, uh, she would not be a a reliable guide for uh, helping us get to heaven. So these are considered these pronouncements are considered uh, to be infallible and that's the the common teaching of uh, pre-vatican II theology
6: uh, yeah, precisely so, the, so we we don't get a
5: we're not guided in the bad direction to follow someone who is actually in hell or someone who is depraved or did not truly profess the catholic faith yeah it's all part of the church's worship
7: people are held up not merely as heroes, but they're held up as persons who will intercede to God for us. It is therefore part of the worship of the Catholic Church. They're in the, the Missal. We, we celebrate the Saints' Feast Days. They, we call for their intercession. So it all falls under the general umbrella, let's say, of the infallibility of the Church in prescribing general and universal laws concerning worship. That is, that the Church cannot err in prescribing universally liturgical rites or any other form of worship uh, that is promulgated through the whole Church. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, the Church shouldn't exist. If, if the Church could lead you to hell or hold up to you a, somebody who is, who is a great sinner uh, as an intercessor with God, well, then the Church loses its whole purpose as the leader of souls to heaven.
1: Well, that, uh, that seems pretty straightforward, does it not? I mean, that, that seems, that's, a, that's perfectly in line with, with, with what Father Bernard just said. But I still find it fascinating that we will have no shortage of people who continue to try to blur this, to, to say that, well, this is, this is still open to interpretation because such and such a person says so. Father, I don't, I don't know if you want to comment on that. I mean, it, is there a way to break this cycle in people's minds that somehow canonizations are not infallible?
2: What Father Jokata and Bishop Sanborn said is absolutely correct. And what I wanted to do is just to read a couple quotes from you. Um, there's probably, you could probably get dozens and dozens of them. But I just wanted to just quote a few things just to back up what they said, uh, that they're exactly on point. And that was the the common teaching of the Church, the common teaching of theologians before Pre-Vatican II, that, in, that canonizations were infallible. Um So, if you, if you don't mind, I'll, just, I'll read a few quotes here. No, please do. Okay, just even just from such a basic source as, first of all, just from the Catholic Dictionary, Pre-Vatican II. I'll just start with that. It's so basic. <laughs> Quote: Canonization involves that the saints not only may but must receive public honor. A day is appointed for his feast and a liturgical office composed therefor. His relics are publicly venerated, churches and altars dedicated in his honor, statues and pictures displayed in churches, and prayers to him made publicly. This judgment of the church is infallible and irreformable. Unquote. And then St. Thomas Aquinas says this since the honor we pay the saints is, in a certain sense, a profession of faith, that is, a belief in the glory of the saints. We must piously believe that in this matter also the Church is not liable to error. St. Liguri says this, To suppose that the Church can err in canonizing is a sin, or is heresy, according to St. Bonaventure, Bellarmine, and others, or at least next door to heresy, according to Suarez, Azorius, and Gauthier, etc. Because the sovereign pontiff, according to St. Thomas, is guided by the infallible influence of the Holy Ghost and in a special way when canonizing things. Uh, Father Jakarta referred to canonization falling within the secondary object of infallibility, and uh, the respected theologian Van Noort, in his uh, third volume on um, dogmatic theology, and the sources of revelation and divine faith, uh, he says that. Um, The secondary object of infallibility comprises all those matters which are so closely connected with the revealed deposit that revelation itself would be imperiled unless an absolutely certain decision could be made about them. He says, But if the Church is to fulfill this purpose, it must be infallible in its judgment of doctrines and facts which, even though not revealed, Are so intimately connected with revelation that any error or doubt about them would constitute a peril to the faith. Then at the end, he, he says, when theologians go on to break up the general statement of this thesis into component parts, they teach that the following individual matters belong to the secondary object of infallibility. One, theological conclusions. Two, dogmatic facts. Three, the general discipline of the church. Four, the approval of religious orders. And five, Canonization of saints, and in fact, I I think you can even go further that this is an ex cathedra statement. It really fulfills everything for an ex cathedra statement. I wanted to read Pope Pius IX in Vatican Council I. He said, "We teach and explain that the dogma has been divinely revealed that the Roman Pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is one." When carrying out the duty of the pastor and teacher of all Christians in accord with his supreme apostolic authority, he explains the doctrine of faith or morals to be held by the universal church. To the divine assistance promised him in Blessed Peter operates with that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer wished that his church be instructed in defining doctrine and faith and morals. And so such definitions of the Roman pontiff from himself, but not from the consensus of the church, are unalterable. But if anyone presumes to contradict this definition of ours, which may God forbid, let him be anathema. So really, look at these points. He's speaking as supreme pastor in his apostolic authority to the whole church. He's speaking about faith or morals or things that are intimately connected with these things. And it's supposed to be held by the universal church. And when the Pope canonizes, he says, I declare and define that this person is in heaven. And so he's He's, he's defining, and that's binding on the Church. And I, recently I just found uh, in the well-respected Catholic periodical, the American Ecclesiastical Review, I came across something on the infallibility of canonizations, and it's brief. I wanted to read it because it explicitly says that these canonizations would be ex cathedra. Now, maybe some theologians might have a slight different opinion. They would still consider it infallible, but I just wanted to read this. Um, he says this, <clears throat> without entering into detailed discussion as to the opinion of theologians regarding the extent of infallibility, and by the way, this is from 1927, from volume 76 of American Ecclesiastical Review, 1927. He said, without entering into detailed discussion as to the opinion of theologians regarding the extent of infallibility, there are two facts which indicate that the act of canonization of a saint implies an infallible decision by the supreme pontiff regarding the heroic virtue of a person, proven by historical evidence, which carries with it the fulfillment of divine promise. There's the kingdom of heaven. In the first place, the terms used by the Holy Father in reading the final verdict as the result of the process of canonization imply that he is speaking at catheter when he proclaims, quote, "...in honor of the Most Holy Trinity," For the exaltation of the Catholic faith and the growth of the Christian religion, we decide and define by the authority of Jesus Christ, the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul, and our own as the Supreme Pontiff, that that so-and-so be inscribed in the Catalogue of Saints, ordaining that his memory be honored throughout the Universal Church, etc., etc., these and similar terms adopted by the popes declare in the second place that intercession be made in the official worship of the church and at the holy sacrifice of the mass to the said saints in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, indulgences are granted in their name for the living and the dead. All of this implies the assurance of beatific vision manifested by the Holy Ghost through the voice of the supreme pontiff, ex cathedra. And if you look at what the ceremony went through, uh, today, uh, there was three pro- proclamations, uh, or three petitions uh, to the Pope, official petitions made to the Pope, and two of them, in fact, just one of them, the uh, very significant, that this was what was asked of Francis. He said, most Holy Father, Holy Church, trusting in the Lord's promise to send upon her the spirit of truth who in every age keeps the supreme magisterium free from error, most earnestly beseech your holiness to enroll these her elect among the saints. And then the Pope responds, Hmm. let us then invoke the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, that he may enlighten our minds, and that Christ the Lord may not permit his church to err in a matter of such importance. So how can anyone, even just taking that alone, how can anyone not think that these are not at least purported to be infallible acts? And this is the final declaration of Pope Francis. He said, For the honor of the Blessed Trinity, the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and the increase of the Christian life by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul and our own, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define Blessed John the 23rd, and John Paul II be saints, and we enroll them among the saints, decreeing that they are to be venerated as such by the whole Church in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How can such a declaration not be considered infallible?
1: Yeah, that's not it's optional obviously.
2: language. <laughs> no. That is supposed to be binding on the whole Church, and they made a mistake. They can't be mm-hmm. popes. He can't be a pope.
1: Yeah, that's, that is very, very well laid out, Father. I was going to kind of transfer you know, here to, uh, uh, to Mario, because I know he's been paying attention a lot. I think he actually watched it. And you know, here again, uh, the language that you know father just laid out, I mean, uh, Mario, this is not optional, is it? I mean, this is clear-cut, defined. I mean, people, people need to start listening to what is being said and, and, and put their Catholic thinking hats on here and listen to what is being said. I mean, would you not agree? Yes, absolutely. Um, if if words have any meaning, you know, then
0: uh, and if Francis uh, were the Pope, then John the Twenty Third and John Paul II would be saints uh, in heaven and uh, you know worthy of everybody's veneration and imitation. There's just no, there's nothing you could say to neutralize that somehow. Um, But, you know, a lot of uh, people in these, uh, you know, that that have this, that take this uh, recognize and resist position, a lot of these people essentially are saying that the church is, um, and I'm putting it bluntly, that the church is infallible only when she's right. Mm. (laughs) And um, that's, of course, a meaningless statement, almost, because uh, that's basically true for anybody. But right. I mean, obviously, this is not what um, what uh, the church's is teaching is about herself and her own infallibility, and um, so no, I don't I don't see any way out. If Francis is the pope, you must accept this, and and that's it.
3: On yeah, Mary, the, Mary, right, hand, I think you uh, I think you make a good point there, saying about well, the, this attitude that the, that the church is only uh, infallible when she's right, and I think it's because people go with the question. in in the Recognize and Resist camp, backwards. Instead of saying the Pope is infallible, and therefore when someone purporting to be Pope invokes that infallibility, therefore that person can't possibly be Pope because this is obviously wrong. Instead of making that conclusion, they go the other way around and say, well, since this guy we believe is Pope made this exercise of what we thought was Mm. his infallible jurisdiction, that actually isn't infallible. Obviously, the canonization yeah. of saints is not infallible. Otherwise, this couldn't have happened, rather than saying, no, he can't be the Pope. So uh, yeah. they yeah. accuse yeah, but- uh, contest of taking it upon ourselves to depose the Pope. Well, they're taking it upon themselves to depose the Catholic faith, so that they can continue saying that Jorge Bergoglio is the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church.
0: Yes, and I, and I would say that that is because they have decided uh, at the very beginning that nothing can possibly, n- nothing can refute that that uh, premise, that Francis is the Pope. They will not allow anything to refute it, and therefore whatever else doesn't fit is going to have to be made to fit somehow.
1: Bill, do you have anything to add to this?
4: One thing that hit me as Father was reading was, Know, who's going to be composing the prayers for the days of the feast day of John Paul II? And what are they going to put in those prayers? I mean, is it going to be all men are saved? Is it going to be praying for the voodoo religions? And all the other things that Pope John Paul II says, are they going to include those in the prayers on his feast day? That's going
2: to be interesting to, pray, to watch. You're going to pray to the great thumb. And, yeah, there you uh, go.
0: <laughs> <on> the- <laughs> yeah, and what, what? I. <laughs> What I would like to know is, will the indult communities like the Fraternity of St. Peter, Institute of Christ the King, are they going to have, are they going to offer a Mass in honor of John Paul II on his feast day?
5: Well, I, I think they have a bit of an out,
3: because they're still allowed to use the 62 calendar, and since he wasn't around yet in 62, I think that's their out. But if the much-rumored uh, uh, unification of the 62 calendar with the... Nova Ordo one ever occurs,
1: then it would be interesting to see what they would do. Yeah, yeah I think that's coming. Um, I'll take it a step farther. Uh, will Catholics, if they don't agree that you know, John Paul II is a saint, will they even go to Mass that day? You know, will they say, well, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we're in good conscience not going to go because we don't believe this man is a saint? And since when is that permissible? That's, that's not permissible. That's not optional. And uh, you know, they're going you know, to have to accept that. They're going to have to go. They're going to have to say that this man is a saint because the church declares him to be so. And uh, we have you – know, we, we spent quite a bit of time here talking about you know the nature of infallibility, of the canonization. I, I want to close this out with um, sort of – to put a period at the end of the sentence here – going back to the Father Peter Scott argument and Mario, uh, you know, you're very familiar with this because, you know, you've read everything you know, that, that he's written. And I think the latest one that came out on the, the district website was doubts of a canonization or something like that. And I'm not sure if that was uh, he that actually wrote that or if it was just excerpts from things that he's written over the past. But uh, last season, from that same show that um, Nicholas did with with um, Father Chikada and um, Bishop Sanborn, they were talking about this, about this 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 whole idea of you know Father Scott's premise that well there's there are procedural errors here, therefore that gives us that nice slippery out. And I wanted to play this clip, and we can all comment on this afterwards. So, what
3: is it that makes it infallible? Is it the fact that the Pope and thereby the Church is declaring this and uh, or is the process or the traditional process part of what makes it infallible because I, I've seen a lot of people seem to think that it's the fact that there was the devil's advocate that uh, your Lordship mentioned and those things that make it infallible the investigation.
5: No, those are simply part of the process uh, but part of the the legal process the trial process that gets to the uh, final effect, and none of the authors that um, uh, I've read about this issue uh, speak about that as an objection to uh, the uh, to a canonization. It's considered infallible by the time it gets there because it's uh, an act of uh, an act of the Church, and sometimes the uh, the decrees themselves uh, use. The term infallibility, uh, similar language, and that makes it very clear that these canonizations are to be considered infallible. Part- Canon means law in Greek.
7: So the very word indicates something binding on all Catholics. And whenever the church binds, it's infallible.
3: Yes. So when uh, certain individuals, specifically, a, the uh, Society of St. Pius X via Father Peter Scott has made the claim that because they've done away with the devil's advocate, therefore we don't need to worry. These so-called canonizations are, don't, aren't infallible and therefore doesn't cause us any concern in terms of the indefectibility of the Church.
7: No, that's a lot of nonsense. By prudence, the Pope is required to uh, study. For example, if he's going to define something, by prudence he's required to dis- to study the subject, also by prudence he's required to go through various processes. But these processes are determined by the Pope himself. So, and they didn't exist before, you know, in a, in a universal way, before Urban VIII. The, all of that was refined after Urban VIII and, and Benedict XIV. Uh, and the, uh, so to say, well, there's, there's no devil's advocate, ergo, it's not infallible, it's just pure nonsense. It all boils down to the power of the Pope to determine the worship of the Catholic Church. And, and it's only, uh, that, that is the assistance to the Church by Christ. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in the Catholic Church. So even if a Pope were to define a dogma without having studied it, it still would remain an infallible dogma and solemn teaching. So, also, even if he were to uh, canonize someone without a due process according to the Urban the Eighth Rules or the Benedict the Fourteenth Rules, he it would still be a valid canonization, there's
1: no doubt about it. So, I think you know that that sort of sums it up. I mean, I, I don't know what more can be said. And, and you know, sure, listeners think that well, this is this whole segment of the show is just a bunch of ravings from zealous accountants go back and read all all the names that Father Bernard was just talking about. I mean, this is long before the Council. This was, this was the mind of the Church, and to this I would add, there are a few events in the church which would need to have, which would need to have the protection of infallibility. I mean, if you just take it from a point of rational um, and 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 logical thinking here, there would need to be that protection in place so that a pope doesn't do something wrong, like canonize a known heretic. So, I mean, I think on the service, without ever having to go back and read all these books, this is. Use your Catholic head here. I mean, there should be that protection in place, Father. Again, you know, would you agree? You know, the Pope is is not above
2: divine law, but he is above ecclesiastical. He can dispense himself. He just dispensed himself. He can dispense himself from a process, because as Bishop Sandborn said, he a Pope invented the process or brought it into effect. He can he can. Uh, unbind that for himself if he wanted to. Like if he woke up one day and said, I'm going to solemnly declare so-and-so a saint, he could do that. It wouldn't be a prudent thing to do. Uh, But he's above those laws if he wants to dispense himself. He's not above divine law. He's not allowed to be a heretic. But he can uh, bypass uh, these procedural norms if he wants to.
1: Well, we have a caller, um, Sean from St. Paul, Minnesota, and he he wants to kind of weigh in a little bit on what the SSPX is claiming um, with, with with regards to these canonizations. Sean, go ahead. You're on the air.
6: Okay, thank you very much. Well, I, I heard a justification today um, for opposing the canonization but not endorsing set of accountism that I hadn't heard before. So I wanted to throw it out and see what kind of... Uh, Feedback it would bring, but what I was told was, in addition to the the devil's advocate issue that um, you've already discussed, uh, it was volunteered that perhaps there was a defect in the intention of Francis, because the words of the solemn declaration notwithstanding, it was stated that the intention of Francis is not so much to hold out John Paul II as a model of sanctity to the Church but instead to canonize Vatican II and reward him for having implemented the council. So that thought is only six years old in my mind, and I wanted to throw it out and see what you had to say about it.
2: Father? I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, I'll let the other
1: ones take care of that. I,
2: I mean, I'm not, not, not against the caller,
1: but I mean, that, that objection, it just doesn't make any sense to me. No, the, uh, Mario, do you want to jump on this?
0: I'm still laughing. (laughs) Um, Simply, uh, I I don't know where they come up with this stuff. Um, Does this this mean now that we have to go back 2,000 years in church history and try to ascertain every pope's intention in canonizing somebody? It's just Mm -hmm. absurd. Mm -hmm. Nicholas, Uh, do you uh, want to say something? Well, it, it,
3: it sounds like they're trying to apply sacramental theology to... Yes. The mm-hmm. declaration that someone's a pope. But the declaration the solemn declaration that someone is a saint isn't a uh, isn't a sacrament. So it doesn't have a cer- a specific uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but I think there's only seven sacraments of the Catholic Church and I've never read in a catechism that canonization
2: is one of them. <laughs> when we're talking about the Novus and maybe they invented that other ones I don't know. <laughs>
3: Right but, I mean, but if it's remember not one of the seven the sacraments
2: it. It, No no, it, absolutely. intention, intention is, is manifested by the words he used. These are the words he used. He def, is defining and declaring that, uh, that John Paul II is a saint in heaven. Uh, it, it doesn't have to say that he's a model for sanctity. He's binding on, on the consciences of Catholics that so-and-so is in heaven enjoying the beatific vision and, and is capable of interceding for us, and he's worthy of our veneration, and that we have to venerate them as saints. That's, that's obligatory. It's not... Beatification is a non-infallible act. It's been considered non-infallible. Beatification. It's saying that you may venerate him in a certain location or, or whatever, but canonization is binding... Saying that you must venerate him doesn't mean you have to say extra prayers to him, but at least implicitly, you have to say you have to accept it. You have to at least say this man is worthy of veneration.
4: It's binding. Bill,
1: did you have anything you wanted to add? Th- There's just no logic there. <laughs> I'll leave it alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mario?
0: Yeah. W- one thing, yeah, one thing I would add, if I could, is w- what is their authority for saying that? Where, where, where do they get this idea? You know, where are the. Uh, the church's uh, doctrinal uh, statements to that effect. W- where are they getting this?
1: Well, Sean, is that? I mean, does that? Well, here, I'll add my my ten cents worth in here to this too. I mean, this to me is classic. This is the um, this is the classic move of the society when it comes to these matters. Is that you know they're going to talk around the issue and they're going to bring up all of these strawman arguments. To get around the fundamental issue, which is the fact that the canonization itself, by its declaration, it doesn't matter what his intent is. It doesn't matter if he's just, oh well, you know, he's in heaven, or oh well, you know, we're only canonizing because he's, you know, he's a model of sanctity. No, it's the whole shooting match. It's the whole ball of wax here. You, know, you cannot separate any of these any of these issues around the central issue of the canonization. So I'm sorry, but I would, I would have to just totally disagree with the entire premise, and I'm not really sure what their premise is other than to try to save face here to, to say that, well, somehow, some way, anyway, we can get around this. So, Sean, does that does that answer your question?
6: Uh, it does. I, if I can, uh, this is a bad pun, but if I can continue to play the devil's advocate for, for, for uh, just one follow-up, go right ahead. Um, I'm pretty sure that if if I would um, argue on uh, this priest's behalf, uh, I think he would say something to the effect of. If Francis doesn't actually intend to hold out John Paul II as a model of sanctity to be venerated by the entire church, then how can it be binding? And I know if I understood um, the comments that were made, this is a question, you would say that it doesn't matter what his intention is, it's the declaration and the story. Well, he said mm-hmm. it. I mean, he I, said it clearly
1: in the Declaration of Canonization that he holds him out to be this. I mean, that language is well, used.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it says, uh, it
2: says we enroll him among the saints, decreeing that they are to be venerated as such. Now, what is a saint but someone who is a model of sanctity, really, a model of virtue? And they are to be venerated as such by the whole Church. So that's, that's presenting it as a model of sanctity. I don't know what else
6: is. Then, would you then say that the issue with this new argument, defect in intention, you, you would say that the that's a bogus argument because there's no way that the society can surmise what his intention is, or would you say that it's a bogus argument because the words of the Declaration manifest the intention?
1: Uh, Father, you want to answer that? Or do you want uh, to answer I,
6: that? Probably both. Um, yeah, both. Uh
2: I mean, there's always going to be in a declaration, perhaps in in every pope's, there's probably an ulterior motive. I'm sure when uh, a true pope in the past canonized a saint in Spain, it was an infallible act, but they did it maybe for political reasons. Maybe they did it to to please uh, the Spaniards or or the French or whatever. There might have been other motives, but that doesn't matter. The act itself was infallible. Uh, I think the the, the declaration itself is sufficient uh, to show that it's binding upon everyone. If they're they're promoting as saints, a saint is someone who's a model of sanctity, that they uh, uh, exercise heroic sanctity, and um, they're upheld by the Church for veneration. So I don't know
1: what else to say uh, than that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Sean, well, thank you for your phone call. We appreciate you calling in tonight. Okay, thanks to
6: you too. Have a great
1: evening. All right, take care now. Bye-bye. All right. I think this is a this is a good chance to kind of shift gears away from the infallibility argument because I think we've I think we've demonstrated clearly. And I think Father has demonstrated clearly through his references of what exactly the nature of the infallibility of canonizations are. So we're uh, just about an hour into our program, and for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. We are talking this evening about the uh, supposed canonizations today in Rome. Uh, our show program is entitled "The Canonization of Vatican II" because it appropriately um, frames what exactly happened. My name is Justin Soder. I am your host this evening, and I am joined by Father Bernard Utley, OSB, pastor of Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in London, Ontario, and I'm joined by my co-host Nicholas uh Mr. Mario Dirksen, and Dr. Bill Sang. We'd like to remind you that the True Restoration Flagship Show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. If you are listening to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, please, uh, please be sure to make an, uh, you know, a small effort to leave us some ratings and reviews. It'll help those who are looking for truly Catholic programming to, you know, to more easily find our work. So... So, kind of shifting gears here, we've talked about the, the, uh, the concrete nature and fallibility of the canonization. So, Father, I, I want to kind uh, of you know, jump back to you here. Let's talk about the individual Catholic now. Now, we've talked about what we would like to see happen, and you know, we've, we've talked about the fact that there's a line in the sand and the people need to start thinking and on and on and on. So, I think it's fair to say this, this event today imposes a burden upon them. Now, what is that burden, and what should the Catholic reaction be to that, Father?
2: Well, I think for the traditional Catholic, for the true Catholic, I think the main thing is that you should not in any way accept this canonization. You have people on the fence that are not sure what to do, but uh, and they're not clear on where they stand. But we have to be clear on this: that never uh, do not call John Paul the Second a saint. Don't call John the Twenty Third a saint. Uh, that's, I think, number one that we just have to totally resist this. Don't give it any credence at all. Um, these men are not worthy of any veneration. Um, uh, I don't know what else to say than that. It, it's uh, it's going to add confusion to people, definitely. But as traditional Catholics, we just have to be clear. We we we, as as Mario said too. Uh, what does it really matter what the Novus Ordo does at one point? We've rejected it completely. It's a false religion. Uh, this is just one more thing uh, to, um, that we, we, we reject. Uh, and we go on. Uh, we, we know what to do as Catholics. We live our Catholic faith. If you're near a true mass, you go to mass, you see the sacraments, you say the rosary, you pray the rosary, pray the stations of the cross, live an interior life, a spiritual life. That's what we've, what we've always supposed to do. So nothing really changes. Uh, we have our marching orders. It's to strive to be a saint ourselves, and that's what we're supposed to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Nicholas, um, I, I kind of want to turn this over to you. Uh, you're speaking about trads at the at the uh, individual level and whether or not they... You know, what exactly does today's event tell them, and what, what burden is it imposed to them?
3: Well, I think today's event clearly in the clearest possible way, shows that the Novus Ordo sect is not the Catholic Church. Um, I mean, I think it's been done before with people like Jose Maria Escriva, but a lot of people didn't know too much about his life. Frankly, I don't know very much about his life. And When I was with the SSPX, I didn't really know who he was, so I didn't pay it much mind. But everyone knows and Paul II. Everyone knows what he did. He was everywhere. I mean, the pictures are everywhere. I mean, it, I don't know how anyone could not know at least some of the clearly heretical acts and teachings uh, of that man. So, that, that's what I think is the big difference here, is that there, there's no denying it, that this is a new religion, and this is a, quote, saint, unquote, for the new religion. This is the exemplar of the new religion. And it makes it absolutely clear that this is not the Catholic religion, because he's not Catholic, and and nothing he stood for is Catholic. So what duty does that impose? I mean, uh, I think Father Bernard summed it up for people who already recognize that fact, but I think for people of the recognize and resist persuasion or the indult persuasion, or conservative, quote-unquote, Novus Ordo people who want to be Catholic and probably are Catholic and in uh, the way they live their lives. The, the duties on them to really take a hard look at this and, and admit that Jorge Bergoglio and all his predecessors couldn't possibly have been Catholic popes, and therefore they need to start seeking out a Catholic church where the true mass is offered and not offered in union with these men.
1: Okay, so next around the horn, we'll go to Mario. Mario, uh, what burden does this impose?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how much more I can add to this here. Um, I I would say, uh, you know, to the traditionalists in the conciliar church, look, if John Paul II is a saint... What are you doing? <laughs> you, you know, I mean, you're re- basically you reject everything he stood for. Um, you, you really need to ask yourself some, some serious questions here. Um, e- e- either uh, you're wrong and he was right, uh, or he's, he, he was wrong and you're right, and then you're in the wrong religion.
1: Mm-hmm. Really Bill, do you have anything to add to this?
4: Honestly, it's, it's really a summation of what everyone said. I mean, the burden in my mind is really for, for traditionalists to make a decision whether the churchmen headquartered in Rome promulgating these canonizations can possibly be Catholic and have an apostolic authority proceeding directly from Christ. I mean, self for themselves, the fundamental question, did Christ lie by promising he would be with the Church always, and the Holy Ghost would protect from error? If the Church, like God, is, is eternal, is, it, is meaning unchanging, those are very basic questions they'll have to really come to grips with from the internal part of their soul. Um, this, these two gentlemen, from what they said publicly, what they promulgated publicly, can't be saints, let alone Catholics.
1: I think this imposes the burden of delicate souls, you know, having to reject not only Popes since Vatican II, but now, you know, now two saints amongst them. I mean, this, this places an additional chain for them to break. I mean, you know, years ago when I was trapped in the Novus Ordo, I guess where my thought process began to really take – to get some, some sort of teeth is you know, beginning to look at what there was before and what there is now and saying, well, you know, how is this possible? And I think all of my, my personal traditional journey was all based upon that question, how is this possible? So if you take that and apply that to this situation, how is this possible? Obviously, it's not possible. It is impossible. Because John Paul II, the figure of John Paul II, and to a lesser degree John 23rd, but you can certainly make plenty of arguments for that. Um, there was an article uh, on the True Restoration blog about you know, the people that you know, he associated with and, and uh, you, you know, the company that he kept. Um, and and uh, you know, these people stand as an affront to everything the Catholic religion is. And I don't say was, I say is, because they're the breakaway sect. They're the ones that have set up this whole new religion. They're the ones that have set up this whole process uh, to bring their prophets of the new religion up to the level of their own their own declared sanctity. This is a radical break. This is a radical departure. And I guess that brings us into the next question is, what does this say about the Vatican II sect and their radical departure from Catholicism? You know, where are they going? Father, you mentioned at the top of the program that you view this as, as very apocalyptic. So... What do you foresee here? Uh, is the direction the Vatican II sect is going to go? I mean, what, I mean, dare I ask what's next? None of us have a crystal ball here, but what do you see from here going forward? John now? Paul II had
2: one, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, where is it going? I have no idea. But yeah. I think things are speeding up. Like I said, I, I I think the next logical step, they have to get rid of the papacy. Uh, I don't know how they're going to do that exactly, but they've already dumbed it down so far. We're uh, canonizing these two men that are that are really jokes that, that have destroyed the papacy. Maybe that's what it, it's all about. Um, if Francis has, has dumbed down the papacy even further than these two men. But w- the only thing left is to get rid of it completely, which is the object of it. Really, it's the, it's the last obstacle to, to the one-world church. Uh, the, the full ecumenism like, or to really the, the advent of the Antichrist. I mean, I'm not necessarily, um, I'm not promoting necessarily the Antichrist coming tomorrow, but things are shaping up in that direction. It's obvious. It's so, it, things are so bad. Uh, and it's a, perhaps a good thing for us that we don't realize, fully realize, how bad the situation is in the world and in the church. I think we would die. Uh, So we're somewhat blinded, thank God, a little bit from it, but uh, we get glimpses of it at times, and it's scary. Uh, We are, uh, I think, running out of time, and it's at the final stages. This is ridiculous. It's getting so bad. Um, And uh, the the remnant of the papacy, or whatever left of it, uh, that's the last thing to go in the Novus Ordo Church. Um, and every, everything else is going to – we're going to have uh, uh, women priests and whatever. Whatever.
1: The sky's the limit after this. Yeah. That's an interesting point, Father. Um, and and it's not one necessarily that I had maybe <laughs> conceptualized in my head, but you're absolutely right. And you see this. I mean this this latest scandal that just came out. Of this phone call that you know, Bergoglio made to this divorced woman, telling her just to go find a different parish to receive, uh, you know, no sort of communion at, kind of getting around her, her priest there who was trying to adhere to the doctrine of the church, which says that you know divorced and remarried can't receive holy communion, and when he talked to her, he you know he addressed himself as Father Bergoglio. I mean, you know, we had this uh, you know shortly thereafter his um, his. His ascendancy, uh, where he went, uh, I believe he, you know, he went to pay or you know, to pick up his luggage from the hotel, and it was, you know, he saw some people in the elevator, and it was, you know, just call me Jorge. I mean, you see this fundamental attack right. at the institution of the right. papacy. I mean, that's definitely where it's going. All right, so I want to go around and, the and horn in reverse this time. I just, oh, go can ahead. I just add on. one more thing, one more point. Absolutely.
2: Um, I noticed in the in the actual declaration mm-hmm. itself, uh, he does not refer to himself as the sovereign pontiff. Uh, in the declaration that I read from the American mm-hmm. Ecclesiastical Review from from 1927, uh, that generally the declaration would add, that, you know, apostolic authority and uh, me, you know, my, uh, us, uh, sovereign pontiff. Those terms were used, and he's deliberately in everything he's has said since he has been elected. He's deliberately not used the term sovereign pontiff and and those things, but the Bishop of Rome and terms like that, everything that dumbed down his author, uh, quote-unquote authority
0: as the Pope.
1: Right. We saw that, uh, you know, from the moment he came out in St. Peter's uh, yeah, out there on the, um, uh, the balcony there, the loggia, where he says, you know, the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, you know, your Bishop needs your prayers, and uh, it's, this, it's this, this, this poignant and fundamental attack upon the papacy. I want to reverse the order here, and I want to start with Bill. Um, you know, where do you see this going, Bill? I mean, what, where is the Vatican II set going? And if you had to, you know, if you had to just take a little prognostication here, what, what, what's the next step?
4: I mean, the vector set, they're going in the same direction that they started with. Now the question is how fast they're going to get there. It's really the question of the length of the vector. I mean, realistically, the Norvus Ordo is orthogonal to Christ's teaching directly on faith, ecumenism, and morals. Uh Where else do you have to change? There's nowhere else to go. They're going to keep doing this. They're going to implement at the local level. It's going to be more and more and more of the same, and faster and faster. That's the only thing I can foresee.
0: Mario? Yeah, um, I would say certainly the the ultimate goal is still the same, and that is to eradicate Catholicism uh, entirely from the face of the earth. Uh, They will never succeed, of course. But that is the goal, and uh, you know Father Bernard uh, mentioned the destruction of the papacy, and I would say that in in the minds of most, it, it has already been destroyed. Uh, certainly, in the minds of the Novos Ordos, uh, you know, with all the the collegiality and all these all these things they have been doing since Vatican II, uh, that traditional concept of, of the papacy, uh, you know, as, as a monarch uh, and so forth, and the sovereign pontiff. That's that's gone. And then I would add that uh, in the minds of most uh, of those who would call themselves traditional Catholics, uh, those, uh, you know, the, the, the recognizers, the recognizing resistors, they, 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 the, their idea of the papacy is, is distorted, completely distorted, because they, they keep resisting this and that and the other. And so I would say that uh, in their minds, the, the, the real papacy uh, has been destroyed as well. Um, so unfortunately, they they are well on their way uh, to that goal of eradicating Catholicism. Again, they won't be successful ultimately, but they're going to do a lot of damage in the process.
1: Nicholas?
3: I've never been particularly good at gazing into the crystal ball and predicting the future, but I, I think one thing's for sure, there's no brakes being put on the revolution, and, uh, I mean, a lot of people seem to think that they were when Benedict XVI was the, well, I guess he still is a claimant to the papal throne, but when he was still actively uh, claiming that, you know, he wore a Pius IX uh, mitre, and people thought the crisis is over, we're going back to pre-Vatican II. (laughs) (laughs) These, uh, quote, canonizations, unquote, clearly show that there's no breaks, there is no change in direction going on we're continuing they're continuing with the vatican II. this is a new religion they're not giving up the new religion and uh, things will just continue the way they have
1: mhm i think you know my thoughts on this are that um you know this is sort of like an invert this is sort of like a um um inverted parabolic i mean you know you take um you know when you look at what's happened over the last 50 or so years uh you know you certainly had um a bit of a slow process to get to where we were at the death of you know JP2 and Benedict the 16th kind of leveled it off a little bit and now we're going down fast i mean this is uh, you know we are accelerating to <laughs> we're accelerating to infinity in a really really quick manner here i mean it's 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 um you know we're seeing um, you know, certainly, we like like you know, with the upcoming bishop's synod here, which I think is supposed to take place in October, where you know they're already talking about second chance marriages and confessional annulments, and I mean, I think anything now is on the table. And uh, I think there's there's been a general reaction to some of the folks that I have spoken with that they think that well they're going to come out, you know, they're going to reaffirm some of the traditional dogmas. To which I stop them and say, why do they think that? But it, you know, they'll they'll say, oh well, you know, they're going to you know, they're going to use more Vatican II lingo here they're going to say that you know, there needs to be you know a a you know a reinterpretation in love and charity, but at the end the you know, the end product is going to be one more doctrine destroyed, one more Catholic truth thrown to the dogs and so if I had to look into my crystal ball, I, I agree wholeheartedly with with Father Bernard. This is nothing more than a a Fundamental step in the the one world religion, and the last thing which I also agree now that I think more about it that stands in the way of that is the institution of the papacy, and and I mean even even you know, we all agree and understand that this man is not the pope, but the you know, the institution the image of the institution there you know, remains. I mean you know the world views him as pope. He's the man in white. He occupies St. Peter's. Well, he doesn't actually occupy St. Peter's. He doesn't even sleep there. <laughs> but uh, you know he's you know, he's one of the he, it's the whole, he represents the whole image. So, you know, that being said, I see this as a radical, radical acceleration towards breaking down the last vestiges of whatever remained of Catholicism and bringing in, you know, the one world religion. And there's been a lot of talk about that. I mean, there's been a lot of, of you know, little things that have come up in the news over the last six months about, uh, you know, getting everybody together. And you see this in, in, in Bergoglio's talks with, like, his quote unquote brother bishop. Of the uh, you know, the Pentecostal sect, um, which is a you know complete and total joke. But I think that's where this is going. It's the acceleration of the one-world religion. Does anybody? Else, does anyone else have anything to add on this?
2: Yeah, that I, I think I agree with uh, Mario. That really the papacy has been destroyed in the Novus Ordo, there, but there is still that uh, vestige of it. But I I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised, anyways, if they. Uh, went to a committee type of uh, system or something else, um, which I've heard talk of uh, years ago that, you know, just to decentralize more and more. And Francis has talked about that. I wouldn't, I don't know, maybe it sounds crazy now, but um, I wouldn't be totally surprised.
1: Yeah, this is, this is sort of flattening of the hierarchy, you know, that the you know, supposed pope, you know, he'll take on a more of a figurehead status. And I think Nicholas would probably agree with me on this, that, you know, he'll, he'll preside over a group of cardinals whom, whom, you know, genuinely papal authority will be handed, sort of like the Queen of England, you know, before a state opening of parliament, pompous, moneyed, but, you know, really lacking sovereign authority. Nicholas, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, I think that would be the more likely way to go. And the Queen of England is a perfect example, because not only does she lack any real authority over the Parliament and the government of the realm, she's also supposedly the head of their church as well. She's the, quote, Pope, unquote, of the Church of England. So I I could see uh, something very similar to that. I I don't know that they would ever completely do away with the office, because there's always going to be those people that they can keep in the Novus sort Ordo of sect and prevent them from going to Catholicism, as long as they have some semblance, as long as they have someone wearing a white cassock there, uh, then they can, you know, people will still say, oh, this is still the Catholic Church, we still need to belong to this. But I could see the, the committee ha- having precedence uh, over, over uh, him. Or, I mean, who knows, maybe it'll be her one of these days, and Father Scott will tell us how that uh, <laughs> d- doesn't uh, interfere with the indefectibility of the Church,
2: either. <laughs> yeah. But Father, did you something bad, Oh, just Pope Joan II. Yeah, oh, yeah that's night. right. Pope Joan II. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Joan II. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, hopefully our listeners don't don't, you know, get up in arms that, you know, we're... We're laughing about this, but it, it really is such a sad, pathetic uh day that, you know, there 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 That's again absurd. has to be some of that gallows humor. I mean, they they just it would be comical if it weren't so sad. I mean, it truly is sad that that this is this is where we are and, and we see these beautiful institutions of our church being torn down by these squatters, you know, who you know, who are there. So You know, I think we we talked earlier about you know the canonization itself standing as a complete affront to everything traditional and Catholic. John Paul too, and let's let's maybe get in a little bit of John the 23rd here because we we haven't talked a lot about him. People tend to give him a pass, particularly in the traditionalist camps of well, he didn't know what he was doing, even though he said he did. Yeah, he didn't know what he was doing. On and on and on. Father, let's let. Let's get your input on this. What was the problem with John the 23rd? We've talked a lot about JP too, but let's talk about John the 23rd.
2: He's definitely not as colorful as uh, John Paul II. And as as, uh, I think there's a lot of um, damning evidence uh, taken here, there, and everywhere. And you add it up and you get a clear picture that he was a modernist, he was liberal. Um, He definitely, uh, and there's just too much evidence against him taken all. You know, bit by bit, uh, it's not as shocking as as John Paul II. So it's hard to pick one thing and say he did this. Um, there's just a lot of little things. Uh, you know, there's talk that he was actually a Freemason himself. Um, he um, surrounding himself by by modernist friends that were explicitly excommunicated, uh, lying under oath to Cardinal De that he was not teaching. Um, from a, uh, uh, a condemned history textbook, at, when he was a professor of history, um, you know, and on his dossier uh, in the Vatican, uh, being sus- being explicitly suspected of modernism, uh, and 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 doing everything opposite, like he himself said, uh, I just think of what Pope Pius, You know, he, he was asked, "How how can you follow such a great man as Pope the XI? And he said, I try to imagine what my predecessor would have done, and then I do just the opposite. Um, mm. That's not a good sign. That's not a good thing. Uh, he, he had these liberal ideas. He started Vatican Council II. It was his baby. Uh, and in the, in the council, whenever these modernistic theologians, these experts, whenever they were opposed by the more traditional council fathers, John XXIII always protected the modernists always sided with them, always, and he threw out the original document outline, all these things. So, so he, he wasn't a Catholic. He he, uh, he started Vatican II, and he inserted his own ideas into it. He, he didn't live long enough to see it
1: uh, end, but
2: um, they were perfectly in line with his beliefs.
1: Mario, uh, what's the problem with John the Twenty-Third?
0: Well, I think uh, one problem uh, was that he was uh, he was very affable. Okay, he he was funny. He he had good humor, and he appeared to the people to be you know well, good Pope John as, as they came to, to call him. And I think that made him all the more dangerous, right? And and he actually reminds me, uh, or I should say actually the other way around, Francis reminds me most of John the Twenty Third. He, he's got that way about him, this the sort of um, you know, well, he doesn't quite fit in, and you know, um, I, I find that makes him uh, quite dangerous because he was he was definitely a modernist inside, and like father said, he he brought it all on. I mean, he 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 began the whole thing. He uh, you know made all of this possible. He was the precursor, if you will, of of the whole new religion mm-hmm. and it's interesting that he actually did take the name John like uh St John the Baptist you know was the uh who came to make uh crooked ways straight and it's like John the 23rd uh reversed it and made the straight ways ways crooked um, mm-hmm. it's uh without John the 23rd there would have not been the council i mean who knows what you know what somebody else would have done but um, it was John the Twenty Third that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, also uh, rehabilitated all those uh, those, theolo- those new theologians that were suspect mm-hmm. of heresy that had been censured, like uh, Chenu and, and uh, you know Ron and, and, and all these people that that uh, were the stars at the council. They, they were there because of John the Twenty Third, if I'm if I'm not mistaken.
1: Mm-hmm. Bill, uh, what are your thoughts on John the Twenty Third and the problems?
0: Yeah, the, the two things
4: that, that sort of struck at me was he was the really the first pope that said that religious liberty is 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 good. <laughs> I mean, that's what he wrote in Pascamenteria, yeah. you know, in 63. You know, also among man's rights is that of being able to worship God in accordance with the right dictates of his own conscience. Holy cow! Here we go again. And that was a, that really set the whole state forward for conscience, conscience dictating rules as opposed to truth, immutable truth. People's conscience are fickle. They go back and forth all the time. That started it all, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Nicholas?
3: Oh, I, I thought you were avoiding me because you figured, knowing my love of pomp and circumstance, I'd been seduced by the fact that he wore the paper tiara. <laughs> <Sierra. laughs>
1: <laughs> well, then good. You figured out why why would why, he why to go to you last. <laughs> yeah,
3: well, um, you know, yeah, and I, I, I jest, but, I mean, it's a situation where if you don't laugh, you cry, or, or yeah, I mean, if definitely. Can, if you don't laugh about this stuff, I we'd just be so depressed and uh, in danger of despair that it's not. I'm not trying to disrespect the subject matter, but uh, sometimes I mean you you just have to laugh at this stuff, and that's why in my profession as a criminal lawyer, we have, we love our gallows humor, and police officers are known for uh, for having all kinds of that because it's you you need it to keep you sane. But I I don't know that I'd add a lot to what's already been said, but in terms of the council happening because of him, it's not just that he called the council. I mean, uh, Pope Pius XII could have called a council. It's the fact that John XXIII agreed with the liberal cardinals when they asked that the preparatory schemata be thrown out and that they start from scratch. The fact that he granted that request made Vatican II what it was. And the fact that he favored the the liberal uh, cardinals as as long as he was in charge of the council, uh, I mean that that right there makes him the father of Vatican II. And and then the other things, I mean, uh, I'm willing to accept the Holy Office's opinion that he was suspect of modernism. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when you add that suspicion plus (laughs) the acts that he undertook once he'd been elected and claimed the office of the papacy. You put put those pieces of evidence together, and there you go. Yeah, I,
8: I think I. Go ahead,
2: Father. Oh. oh, just two points. Sorry about that. Just oh, I just fine. wanted to add two points that that I remember. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard this, but I I heard that uh, when they exhumed his body, they found that his body was facing down.
4: Yeah, I heard that
2: a, too. A, that's a tremendous feat for a man of that size, you know. Um, but that would stop the canonization process immediately. You know, that'd be like, what is going on here? This is, this is, this is definitely not a good sign. And I just want to add one other thing. That I just remembered uh, that I think he was, he was a perfect transitional pope because he did do some traditional things, but he started weakening it slowly and slowly. I remember reading that Cardinal uh, Spellman, when he came back from the, Conclave. He said something like, "That man's not a pope. That man should be selling bananas."
8: You know, he had this
2: <laughs> sense that this man was not that sacred. You know, he wasn't taking his office sacred. So that's all I wanted to add.
1: No, I think those. I think those are all excellent points. And I think one of the reasons why John the Twenty-Third is a bit shrouded in his real his real beliefs and motives is because you know we live in an information age now. This is one of the things I've I've spoken with Father Chicata about, you know, all work of human hands and I kinda naively asked the question, Well, you know, why didn't Catholics at the time stand up and, you know, with all these things coming out? And you know, he kinda had to gently remind me, it's like, Well, Justin, we weren't living in an internet age. You know, people you know, people didn't have the ability to see what was going on. I mean, yeah, you know, they might get a document here or there, but they weren't getting daily pictures, they didn't have websites to go to, they didn't they didn't really have the, the um you know, they didn't have the ability to stay up to the date daily with all of this stuff, and so that you know that condition being as it is, it's going to be difficult for people to get a real clear picture of him. But I wanted to point our listeners: there's an article up by one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Frank Domenico, on the True Restoration blog, and he writes in this. Uh, he wrote an article called Canonization and, and the Company One Keeps, and he, he put in there, quote, In the case of Angelo Roncalli, a.k.a. John Twenty-Third, it's permissible to cut Catholics in slack because of the outrageous images of him hobnobbing with the church's most dangerous enemies were not readily available at the time. Among these revealing images is Roncalli receiving his cardinal's hat from Francis Socialist President Vincent Oriol, uh, an avowed atheist who was rabidly anti-Catholic. Ron Colley was also not the least bit shy of being photographed with the likes of uh, Edward Harriet, a radical socialist who vehemently denied the Holodomor war and the Ukrainian Holocaust that claimed the lives of millions of Catholics via deliberate starvation this I, I think this frames the problem with John the twenty third in most people 's minds is that they they, they, they don 't know the specifics now Nicholas mentioned too that you know he was um, you know I, and i 've heard the story too that uh you know, one of the first acts he did after ascending to to you know, the papacy uh, was you know, he went to the Holy Office and pulled his file, and it said suspect of modernism, which you know, he laughed at and says, "Me a modernist?" Well, you know, most people don't realize that he was fired from from his teaching. And I, uh, Father or, or or Mario, you can you can correct me. Wasn't it at the uh, the Angelicum he was fired? Uh, uh, it's either that or the Gregorian. Uh, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think it was I one of those two. It may have been. I'm. I'm just. I'm just a little bit uh, you know, devoid of the the actual title here right now. But you know, he was fired for teaching from modernist textbooks, and certainly he he called the council, and you know, the council was his baby. And he specifically talked about what he wanted to do in the council. And you, know, you can read some of his writings. You know, I think I think Bill quoted um, uh, uh, Pachamenteros. I mean, it's a horrible document uh... You know, which was the you know, Latin, you know, for peace on earth. It, you know, is a horrible document, but you, you, you can really see the mind of this man. And uh, so, I, yeah, I think that's, you know, we cannot let him off the hook simply because we didn't know enough about him. I mean, you have the ability now to go out and do your own research, which was just not available at the time. Does anybody want to add anything else to this on John the Twenty-Third?
3: No, I think we've covered it.
1: Okay. Okay. Okay, so uh, you know, we lost a caller unfortunately a few minutes ago, and um, you know the caller w- was 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 saying that um, you know she, she went to a Latin mass for the very first time and she was so moved that she's going back next Sunday on and on, um, but she said that it was the canonizations that drove her to take the step, and she doesn't understand the differences between the groups, uh, which our call screener said somebody you know somebody would explain uh just not quite you know right now because we can't get you know, we can't get you know derailed on that but i think i would add and i think father bernard would say too you know keep studying keep listening and really start using rational thought here to try to make the determinations on what the real step is father would you agree
2: yes yes there, there there's definitely some uh good websites to start with you know uh, uh and and uh places like that uh, it links to a lot of other good places. So, you know, the, the research is there. The, the, the facts are there for people to find. And
3: mm-hmm. I would say, please, please email us. Uh, you can email us at mail at org, And uh, we'd be more than happy to answer that. But uh, mm-hmm. frankly, that sounds like a fantastic idea for a blog post. So uh, maybe I'm going to try to write up a little cold notes version of what are the differences between the various,
1: Latin math groups unquote yeah well that's good it's good you embrace the principle that he who chairs the idea chairs the committee so you can, <laughs> yeah. you can do that Nicholas. that's a good idea absolutely okay so let's move here into sort of our 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 closing or getting towards the close here uh, and I want to pose this question to father and then we'll go you know, we'll kind of go around the horn and get people's opinions here father. Uh, I think, uh, and and I certainly see this trait in the adult friends that I have, where they're just going to just totally shut their minds off. They can't handle it. They can't, you know, they just can't deal with this. They can't do that set of a contest instead, because that's just crazy. That's impossible. So I'm just going to ignore it, act like it didn't happen. I'm going to keep silent. Is there a grave danger to those who disagree but decide to keep silent?
2: Well, I I think um, they cannot claim to be uh, uh, inculpably ignorant. They are culpable. The fact is presented. They can't deny it. They can't be an ostrich to put their head in the sand. They have to face it. They have to, in their conscience, they have to make a practical uh, conclusion in their conscience. Um, You can't just ignore it.
1: Mm. Uh, Nicholas, what would you say to that?
3: No, I I, I don't uh, know that I can... Really add anything to what Father said? I mean, uh, mm. I mean, yeah, it's tough. It, it's going to be tough for sure because people in the Indults and in the SSPX have had it hammered into their brains for years, possibly decades, depending on how long they've been with their particular math center. That sedevacantism is absolute insanity. It's like the most evil of evil things. It's worse than Satan worship. It's a mortal sin to even think about it, let alone read something that, you know, the, the well-known set of the writers like Father Ciccata, Bishop Sanborn, they're monsters. So I, I, I have sympathy for people because I went through that myself, that you've just had it beaten into your mind so much that these guys are just absolute tinfoil hat-wearing maniacs that you can't even countenance the idea of thinking about sedificatism, but uh, turn it around. How insane is what's going on in the Church? Um, you know, and I mean, if, if that's that insane, maybe the, the sane guys are the ones that everyone says they're crazy. And, uh, I mean, this has to be, you have to resolve this. You can't go to a Latin mass and and try and believe the Catholic faith, but then have men such as these held up as, as popes and or, or as saints. Um, so I think Father's right. You, you can't say that you're uh, inculpably ignorant anymore. You've got to say, I, I don't care if people say this is insane. I've got to look into this more seriously.
1: <laughs> Mario, do you have anything to add?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, Bishop Sanborn put it very well a few years ago when he said that uh, by saying that uh, these men, these, these, uh, after uh, Pius the XII, these, these supposed popes, by saying that they are not popes, we're just saying something that is possible. It is possible, you know, that Francis is not the pope. It is possible that John Paul II was not the pope. But it is not possible that the Church should err. Uh, in, in canonizing, in teaching, uh, that she should uh, promulgate evil uh, laws for the whole Church. These things are not possible, but it is possible that Jorge Bergoglio is not the Pope. That is possible. So we're just affirming something that is possible, and we're, and, and we're affirming that because the alternative is not possible. And, and I think people need to realize that you cannot Um, you cannot uh, keep the faith by changing it. And and that's what they end up doing. They they end up creating a church that does not need to be uh, submitted to, that does not need to be obeyed, where each individual has to constantly, uh, you know, uh, basically reject what comes from from the Holy See, when that is the highest authority in the Church. So, um... There's just been so much misleading information about this. The cynicism is not say is not being wrong about who the Pope is. That that's not the cynicism. The cynicism is refusing submission to the person you believe to be the Pope. That is the cynicism. And so, um, really, Catechumatism is the only safe
1: position to take here. Okay, Bill, I'm going to get your, yeah, your thoughts. Is is there a grave danger to those who disagree but keep silent?
4: Well, I think so, because realistically, and whenever you're starting up a new religion, you know, typically whether it's Mormonism or Lutheranism or anything like that, the first thing that you do is you raise the people that, that founded the religion to high levels of sanctity and reverence. You put them at the top of the pinnacle, and that's really what's going on here. There's a new religion in the North Norpus and they're putting the guys that were the, the founders, essentially, you know, Ron Kali for calling the council to change the liturgy, you know, JP2 for actually implementing changing the structure and canon law of the church. You've got a new religion altogether. And so, realistically, the danger is to say that those two that started this new religion are really Catholic. Well, it's not the same religion anymore.
1: And so they have to come to that grips and realization. Okay, I'm going to finish this off and let Nicholas yeah, well, lead into a question here. Yeah, Maybe well, yeah, just just,
3: yeah, you preempted me. I was just going gonna... to jump in there. with uh, uh, I, Now, I mean, this is a gigantic topic, as Father Bernard alluded to. It's not just the elephant in the room, it's the herd of elephants in the room. But I'm, I'm, as I'm sitting here, we talked about John the 23rd and what's wrong with him. And there may be listeners who are thinking, well, what's so bad about John Paul II? He was conservative. He was against abortion. He held the line on contra- artificial contraception. Uh, he brought uh, down, white down the Iron guy. Curtain. Yeah, why do you yeah, he destroyed communism. Why do you guys uh, hate him so much? And granted, I mean, for for those who aren't initiated into the study of the heresies of John Paul II, we can't possibly even scratch the surface here hardly. I mean, you could spend days, literally days discussing his heresies. I mean, I have a conference from Bishop Williamson that's 16 hours long, just talking about all the heresies in two of uh, John Paul II's encyclicals, his first two encyclicals. So, I mean, that gives you an idea. But, uh, Father Bernard, you gave a very good encapsulation in uh, your sermon today, and I had the benefit of serving it or listening to it, but none of our listeners have, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give us just a few of the points that, that, from that that you had prepared that you think are the most
8: hmm?
3: uh, salient to kind of get people started on why they, uh, why this quote conservative unquote uh, 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 reputation is completely unfounded.
2: Mm-hmm. Actually, I heard that on the radio today. They were talking about the canonizations and they presented John the 23rd as the progressive and John Paul II as the conservative. I was like, that's ridiculous. Um, (laughs) No, it 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 literally would take hours to go through it. I just listed a few things for the sermon, and I spent 30 minutes, and I I barely said anything. You know, that's why Bishop Sanborn could easily spend, in one of his shows, you know, two two hours just talking about these things, easily, uh, just on a few points. But You know, he he said so many heretical things, but I think one thing that stands out to me anyway is that he believed in universal salvation. Uh, In many places, he said, now, quote, in 1980, he said, Christ obtained once and for all the salvation of man, of each and of all men, of those whom no one shall snatch of his hand. The Church announces today the paschal certitude of the resurrection, the certitude of salvation, of each and of all men. Uh, He said things like that. In other places as well. That's heresy. Um, Saying explicitly that the Muslims, uh, we believe the same God as the Muslims. Um, Saying that the voodoo's worship the same God as the Christians. Uh, The voodoo's worship the devil. They worship snakes. Uh, That's blasphemy. That's obviously wrong. Um, Saying things like the old covenant of the Jews is still valid and hasn't been revoked. Then what's the purpose of the Savior? What's the purpose if we don't need him? If the old covenant is still valid, um, it just there's so many different quotes. And I think the the key though of, about him is uh, more of his actions. Uh, actions speak louder than words. And you can you can uh, heresy need not be spouted by the mouth. It, um, you can you can be heretical in your actions. They can imply outright heresy and apostasy. And that's where John Paul II excelled. I think he said a lot of heretical things, but he did some pretty r- absurd things. Um, false ecumenism. He was an ecumaniac. He, part- he partook of uh, false worship with practically every religion on the face of the earth. Uh, and that's a grave sin against the first commandment of God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. How basic can we get? That's the first commandment. Um, Communicatio on Socrates, He part- uh, communicated in sacred things with mm-hmm. these false religions um pope pius the 11th thought that uh equi- uh promoting humanism is equivalent of abandoning the religion revealed by god That's apostasy and <laughs> it's just he's done so many things uh with other religions uh the native indians the the the, the african witch doctors um you know at the polynesian islands drinking that uh, religious potion uh, receiving that Mark of the mark of Shiva in India, uh, kissing the Quran. I mean, he didn't accidentally slip and kiss the book by accident. Uh, he reverently bowed and kissed the book. Um, Saint Thomas said that, for example, if anyone were to worship at the tomb of Muhammad, he would be deemed an apostate. What about kissing the Quran? I mean, all these are uh, acts of apostasy, and they they. They just manifest what he believes.
3: And if there's any listeners who are fans of Jimmy Aiken and have heard his defense of right. the receiving of the Mark of Shiva, there's an excellent video that was emailed to us uh, before the show uh, by um, a person uh, using the screen name of No Sacred Cows. And, uh, I mean, Jimmy Aiken tried saying this was just some traditional Catholic greeting Uh, And that this woman that put the mark on JP2 wasn't a a Hindu uh, priestess, she was just a Catholic laywoman. But uh, Google searched that video, and it completely annihilates that argument, and completely proves that, yes, he did receive the mark of Shiva, Mm
1: Yeah, that's also on uh, Novus Ordo Watch. You so, I mean, if our listeners go to Novus Ordo Watch, you can see the whole video. It, it You know, it, it's fantastic. And either Jimmy Aiken and I'm going to say this as charitably as I can, either Jimmy Aiken is sorely, sorely misinformed and grasping at straws or he is deliberately lying. You know, one of the two. There is no third option there. So I like to hope he's sorely misinformed, but I, I mean, this is something that he should have researched long before coming out with his defense. That somehow, you know, oh, you know, he says, well, this is this is how you know, many of the people in the region greet their priest before mass. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me, <laughs> you know. I mean, Father, you know, have you ever had someone put, you know put a mark on your forehead as a greeting before mass? I mean, give me a break. And this is just, you know, uh-huh. it's just more grasping at straws.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think we we should add here that it, what what he did there, what what he had done to him, was entirely consistent with his theology. I mean, this, this did not at all contradict what he what he was teaching. That that was totally uh, in line with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And all
0: religions are more or
2: less good and praiseworthy. And that God, that the Holy Ghost, he he said that the Holy Ghost uh, has inspired these other religions. That's blasphemy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, yeah, he did say that. I mean, you know. Believed in... Go ahead, Mario. And JP, too. Oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, he pretty much believed and taught that uh, there's uh, a little bit of the Catholic Church in every religion. I mean, <laughs> to put it bluntly, right?
1: Yeah, you know, we can look back, too, you know, at the most scandalous things, too, like, you know, blocking the statue of Our Lady of Fatima from entering St. Clair's at Assisi. But yet, somehow, you know, Buddha was allowed to be brought in, sit on top of the tabernacle, and incense by. Hindu, or by, by uh, you know, Buddhist priests. I mean, this is just, you know, these, these pictures are available. They're out there. This isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, the ranting of a bunch of lunatics trying to pull things out of thin air. I mean, this, these things happen. The, go ahead, Father. What
2: I find interesting, Justin, is that when you present these pictures to people, they, their immediate thing, oh, that's doctored. Why do they say that? If they know that if that's the true picture, that guy can't be the Pope.
7: So they they
2: take right. Photoshop before Photoshop existed. They they don't believe it. You, even if someone rose from the dead, they won't believe it.
7: What and other, JP,
2: you
4: know? and JP two mandated that, that Catholic teachers teach their children about other religions. You know, and so their means of places. salvation. You, that's right. You can't take a picture about that. That's a, you know. Christ said, "My word." You know, if you what you do to these little children, you know, he should be put with a millstone around his neck. I mean, if you mislead the children, he's misleading the children.
1: Well, we are coming up here at the end of our program here. We've about 10 minutes left in the live feed. If we go over for a few minutes, it should be available after the program is over with. You can go to um you know, our website and you can download the the last few minutes of the show. I say that with a caveat that when I did Francis Watch last month, for some reason, uh Blog Talk uh, Radio didn't record the last 20 minutes of the show. So, I'm giving you, you know, my my goodwill hope that uh you know everything will be available after the show is over if if we run over. So I think this is a good this is a good chance here. I mean we've we've only skimmed the surface and that was really what this program was supposed to be about. We'll have a more forensic study of this when we do our next Francis Watch show, um, which will be just two hours, just on the on the nuts and bolts of of these two characters. Don't I don't have a a uh, you know, show date for that yet, but uh, just just keep watching the blog. You know, we'll we'll certainly announce it. We're having some scheduling conflicts right now, but let's go ahead. Uh, you know, Father, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, give us your closing thoughts on this whole sad episode today, and you know, what what are those who are confused to do?
2: Well, I think the ultimate conclusion is that these men are uh, that Francis cannot be the pope because he made this declaration that's supposed to be infallible. And that the only logical position is that the Sea of Peter is vacant, um, set of the And as set of contus, um, we're not saying that set of is a solution to this apostasy. Uh, it doesn't claim to be a solution, but it is the proper diagnosis. And there's something, there is a peace and tranquility in set of because we don't have to make excuses for the novice Ordo. we don't have to do mental gymnastics. Uh, for Francis and put ourselves through mental acting to make sense out of everything. I think it's very clear cut. It's, it's simple. We're just Catholic. We believe everything in in the books that were written pre Vatican II. And that's one thing beautiful is that all of us on this panel, we can just reach any Catholic book pre Vatican II and say, this is what we believe. They all say the same thing. We don't have to, 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 uh, um, add in other qualifications and, and make things complicated. It's very simple actually. Um, but we're not primarily set of a contest. We are simply Catholic, and we just want to be Catholic. We want to save our souls. We want to become saints. And I think what we should do is, is as I said before, the same thing that we should be doing anyway,
0: is, is the best
2: state to live in is in the state of grace, and that we have to turn to an intense spiritual life of prayer and penance, and we have to prepare for eternity, because all this is going to end, um, You know, even if we're not around for the apocalypse, each one of us are going to have our own individual end of uh, last day, our own individual apocalypse. So we have to personally strive for a close union with God, not get too lost in the controversy, keep focus on what's important, uh, is union with God uh, through the sacraments, primarily through the Mass, but through interior prayer and recollection. And if these two men are definitely not saints... The one thing we do need is real saints in this world. I remember reading about Padre Pio. When he was said to a mob that was trying to tear off pieces of his clothes as relics. He said to them, go make your own relics. And that's what we have to do. We need saints. God wants us to make saints, uh, wants to make us saints, uh, if we only abandon ourselves completely to his divine providence and give ourselves generously to him. And uh, we just need saints. We have to take this seriously. Those people that, those of us who have the faith, take it seriously because it's a gift and God wants you personally to be close to him and be a saint. And that's my final final thoughts. Nicholas, your final
3: thoughts? I certainly share many of the sentiments expressed by Father that this is just further evidence and very compelling evidence that, the uh, claimants to the papal throne since Vatican II cannot possibly be the actual pope of the Roman Catholic Church, and that the only logical solution, or the only logical explanation, rather, is the set of a contest one. And in terms of the serenity of that position, what I would add to what Father said is, there's also the serenity of not having to be in constant fear of, are they going to take our indult away from us? Are they going to shut down the Fraternity of Saint Peter's Seminary the way they shut down the friars, uh, Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate Seminary? Uh, is Bishop Felle going to sign on the dotted line and are, are we going to lose everything? Uh, you don't, you know. Are they going to change uh, the Good Friday prayers again? Are they going to try to force the modern calendar on us? N- none of that's an issue anymore when you recognize what the real problem what the situation is, that there is no Pope. And the other thing is we've spoken a lot about theologians and the clear teachings of the Church that these are infallible acts. But even if we set aside whether the uh, canonization of an individual by the Pope is an infallible act or not, this is just a stark example that the Novus Ordo sect is not the Catholic Church. As I said earlier in the show, John Paul II is just completely different, opposite of all the Catholic saints. And if John Paul II and John the 23rd, if these are the people being held up for emulation by the Novus Ordo sect, that's your proof positive right there that this is a foreign entity— it may be inside the buildings that have that were built by the Catholic Church and look like the Catholic Church buildings, but it, it's a false religion, and who they hold up as their exemplars is the proof of what that religion is all about.
1: Mario, your final thoughts?
0: Yeah, I would say that um, to all those who are you know, traditional Catholics who want to be traditional Catholics and are not set of a contest, I, I, I would say um, if you're going to be a traditional Catholic, then then be a traditional Catholic. Uh, do adhere to, um, you know, uh, everything the Church teaches up until uh, Pope Pius twelfth. But then don't go ahead and start modifying it so you can make it work with the idea that Francis is the Pope and that, uh, that uh, you know, any, everything that happened after Pius twelfth came from legitimate Catholic authority. Um, I mean, take any pre-Vatican II catechism uh, theological manual and see if you can apply it to the conciliar church, and you'll find out that you can't. Um, and uh, just draw your, draw your own conclusion then from that.
1: And Bill, your, your concluding thoughts?
4: Yeah, realistically, it follows on, the, on Nicholas. I mean, they chose these two men to canonize at the same time. There haven't been that many popes canonized in the past 500 years or so. These two were specifically chosen because of their role in starting the new religion. And it just is that simple. When you start a new religion, you have to extol the founders. They
1: did, and here we are. Well, you know, my closing thoughts are <clears throat> I can't really uh say it any better than than all four of you have um, I would just encourage people to really start thinking start start uh asking yourself those hard questions uh you know take your positions or 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 the positions which you have been told to adhere to, and you know, juxtapose those to Catholic teaching Catholic principles you know there are plenty of resources out there to start uh uh, to start doing a, a sincere research. Pray about it, be of goodwill, and uh, pray to, be, uh, you know, to have your, your mind illuminated you know, by the Holy Ghost. So with that, I want to thank all of, uh, all of our panelists, Father Bernard, Nicholas, uh, uh, you know, Mario, and uh, you know, Dr. Sang. And I want to give Father Bernard a minute here to, to, uh, to wrap up with some thoughts here on the new monastery, which he is, is uh, trying to get going there. Father, do you want to talk about that for a few minutes?
2: As uh, many of our listeners know, I am a Benedictine monk. Um, I was trained under under Avalaine or Gerardina, and I'm, I'm hoping to start my own uh, contemplative Benedictine monastery here in uh, Ontario somewhere, and I have found a property that I'm interested in. I do have to raise a significant amount to acquire it, and nothing's guaranteed, of course, that it will be sold to me, but it, is a, <laughs> it does belong to uh, the diocese, and hopefully they're selling it. Hopefully I can get it... Uh, uh, by proxy or, or whatever, but it is a, it would make a perfect monastery. And uh, if any of our listeners able to uh, help support, help, uh, help me raise the money um, and donate for this cause, we do need contemplative monasteries more than ever. Uh, you can count on one hand how many traditional Catholic monasteries there are in the world. And what I'm doing is not superfluous, but necessary. And if anyone is able to help me out, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, I do have one location with me, one young man who's a postulant, and uh, hopefully more to follow if I have the room. I literally don't have the room to
1: take any other locations at this point. I
2: do want to expand. So and like if that. any
1: of our listeners uh you need to get in touch with Father Bernard, would like to make a donation to that, uh you can email us at mail at truerestoration.org and we will put you in contact with Father Bernard so you can discuss uh how many zeros you're gonna write at the end of your check to him, which I'm three, uh, which which hopefully uh will be uh will be plenty to you know, get plenty to get, get the monastery going. So Again, I want to thank everybody here this evening for taking time out of their Sunday evenings to be with us. Father, thank you after a very long day, and certainly after a long Holy Week last week. And just uh, it, It's been a real pleasure.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your Catholic faith, that you would consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, A heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Uh, Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. So, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can mail us at mail at truerestoration.org. If you'd like to reproduce our work or our copyrighted material on your channel in some format, you can reach us at the same address.